this show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 166 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Anthony Goldblum and Jeremy Howard, who are both co-founders of Kaggle, the leading platform for predictive modeling competitions. Um, hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Yeah, we really appreciate you guys taking the time out to, to be on the show, especially since we're taking two of you away from the, uh, the process of building Kaggle. Um, so I guess to, uh, to get started... Um, Jeremy, or actually to start with you, Anthony, I, since I think you came up with the idea initially, is tell us what Kaggle is and uh, how you got started on it. Sure. Um, so I'll tell you what Kaggle is, and um, maybe we'll also, uh, to get people hooked on why they should care about Kaggle, um, talk about a bit about what we hope Kaggle will become as well. Um, so Kaggle's basically a platform for predictive modeling competitions. Uh, we've got somewhere around 25,000, no, 27,000 now um, members uh, from all over the world. And these are typically people with a background in statistics or computer science or um, physics, electrical engineering. And they'll compete to build the best predictive model uh, on a particular data set. So to give you an example, um, one of the more mundane examples would be a bank that wants to predict who is going to default on a loan. Uh, the bank might put out data like, you know, income, age of the borrower, uh, the, I don't know, um, uh, whatever other variables, gender, if they're allowed. Uh, and these data scientists would basically build models that predict who among those, uh, those historical borrowers would default. Um, at the end of a competition, the winning algorithm or the, the uh, predictive modeler who's built the most accurate algorithm uh, gives that algorithm over to the bank and the, in exchange they, um, the bank sort of has an algorithm to um, basically improve the accuracy of their models. Does that give you a, enough context or did you yeah, want me to... It, it, to, it, to me it sounds a lot like the uh, Netflix competition but you're allowing any company to come in and sort of set up a competition like that. Yeah, that, that's right. The, the Netflix prize was a $1 million prize, which was, which was innovative and um, very important historically in, in the history of, of data mining in general. It was a prize to find better ways to come up with something vital to Netflix, which is recommending to Netflix customers what movie they should watch next. I believe something like 80% of the movies watched on Netflix are actually um, uh, watched on the basis of those recommendations. Right. Um, so that $1 million prize ran for, was it one year? I think two it was years? two and a half. Two and a half years, yeah. Um, and it actually dramatically improved. It was worth a million dollars and it dramatically improved the quality of those, of their, those key models. Um, and it kind of showed the, the industry what was possible when you harness the power of the, of the competitive instinct of, um, of people. So just to, to drill into that um, a little bit more, uh, 
two things tend to happen when you host competitions. Uh, the first one is you get people from unusual backgrounds, and I'm sure over the course of this podcast we'll talk more about that. Um, but we've had a glaciologist win a competition for NASA, for example, uh, and they use techniques that NASA had never thought to try before. Um, the second reason um, you get really big improvements like the improvement that Netflix saw is that um, feedback's given on a live leaderboard. And so people know in real time exactly how they're doing relative to others. So if you're at the top of the leaderboard one day, you might think, oh, wow, I'm, I'm doing really well. Somebody comes along the next day and they get ahead of you. You have to know what they they know you keep plugging away until you get ahead of them and then they keep plugging away until they get ahead of you um so it turns out that i think kaggle has hosted in total if you include class competitions about 70 competitions and any time there's been a pre-existing benchmark like for example the best that the netflix engineers were able to do uh, we've been able to outperform that benchmark and it's for those reasons i'm just curious to know about the portability of the algorithms i mean are the algorithms written directly within the Kaggle platform and then exported? Or how does that side of things work? So what happens is that um, we, we actually let um, competitors use whatever tool they want. So they actually use their own laptop computers or their own mainframes or whatever they have access to. Um, they download the data from the Kaggle website and then they run it on their own systems with the libraries and tools that they're most familiar with. At the end of the competition, they then hand over to the competition host the actual model that they've built. Now, this has a lot of benefits. Um, What we've found is that doing it this way, you actually end up with much better models. You also end up with a lot more people getting involved. Now, the first reaction to that might be to think, um, gee, you know, doesn't that mean that you could end up with models that are very hard for the competition host to implement? But what's really interesting is that um, the actual outcome of that modeling process normally is a not particularly complex algorithm. It's something that might kind of add some things together and weight them and might have a decision tree in there. Um, But the important things is things like what are those weights? What are those split points in the decision tree? And creating those is what's called the training process. And the training process is where all the sophistication and the complexity is. And that's kind of done behind the scenes by the competitors. And they hand over the outcome of that, which is the final model, which normally doesn't take that much effort to implement. We haven't had any um, uh, competition hosts so far who have been um, had a problem with that part of the process. Is a model agnostic from a code point of view? Somewhat, yes. Um, I think what Jer- another way to put what Jeremy's saying is that the really key finding, um, so when at the end of a competition, the most important bit, what gets you from you know um, where you currently are to 10% better or 20% better or 300% better, whatever the delta is, um, tends to be much less the algorithm. So did I use random forest or support vector machine? Um, and far more the pre-processing um, or the, the way the, the variables are combined. So to use an anecdote from the Netflix prize, for instance, um, somebody worked out, somebody made a big improvement on the existing model when they worked out that if you rate two movies in a day, the second movie you rate will be rated very differently to how it would have been rated if it was the first movie that you had rated uh, that day. Um, And another example they had, which I thought was quite cool, was 
if the movie's if the last character of the movie name was a number, hmm. that was a feature. And of course, you know, we know that actually means it, it was a sequel and maybe, you know, sequels tend to be at the lowest common denominator end of things. So that was an important feature. Hmm. So in the end, the Netflix prize winning entry had, I think, 70 separate models, which were all combined. Um, but the winning entrance paper pointed out that even just one of those models would have um, um, broken the benchmark or got close to beating the benchmark. And the important thing there was the features that were identified and the overall concepts that they developed. Another fun yeah. one. Oh, just a, a follow-up, one thing on the, on the pre-processing of data. I mean, it seems to be that, um, at least in my experience with data um, analysis and analytics in the uh, world of trading, it's, it's, the reason that's so important is that if you, if you pre-process it right, I mean, it really requires a true understanding of the data. And it seems like that that's one of the biggest advantages, and, and which goes to the, the, the reverse of that, of course, is that if you don't understand the data, no matter what algorithms you bring to the party, it's kind of hard to really do anything you know, really great or special with yeah, it. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. And, um, there's, and you know, it, it does turn out indeed that, that human beings, when they actually look at the data and they actually build these features, do a better job than automated algorithms. And, and obviously, if that wasn't the case, then there would be no need for Kaggle participants to, to engage in competitions. We could just use the one or powerful algorithm. Having said that, the human element they bring is generally not very domain-specific. And the empirical evidence we have for that is that in almost every single competition we've run, the winning entrant has not been somebody with deep domain knowledge of the area that is being analysed. The, mm. uh, the trick to getting into a situation where um, somebody who isn't what you might call a domain expert can win a competition that's out of their domain is, ha is having the problem be well specified. So, you know, the, the, every competition has a description and a data dictionary. And it's that data dictionary um, that explains, I guess, the, the, the bits about the domain that the competitor must Yeah. Know. I mean, in fact, it's also, this is partly where Kaggle comes in and does something a bit special, which is we um, tend to help the hosts specify the competition in a way which the data science community will more easily understand. So, for example, um, when NASA and the European Space Agency and the Royal Astronomical Society came together to host a competition on mapping the dark matter in the universe, one of the challenges was that the way they were originally thinking about the problem required an understanding of many, many areas around kind of cosmology and uh, astronomical signal processing and special file formats, special functions. Um, and so we helped kind of translate all these, create a competition which any data scientist could, could get their teeth into because it used concepts that they understood. So in some ways, Kaggle creates the optimal collaboration between the domain expert and the data scientist. So each, I guess, each part of this collaboration does what they do best. What are the prizes? And pe do people do it for intrinsic reasons or do they do it to get money? Yeah, so this leads nicely into our vision for Kaggle. Um, at the moment, it's, well, up until now, it's been 
probably mostly, well, in fact, definitely mostly uh, intrinsic reasons. And Jeremy can talk to this better than I can because he was a um, he was a Kaggle Star competitor before he part star player, I should say, before he came on uh, as part of the business. But um, it's mostly uh, to learn to benchmark one's algorithms to. Um, uh, to test out um, which techniques work well and which don't on a wide variety of data sets, and also there's there's um, yeah there's the, the well, uh, it's really fun. It's fun, and and it's a really stimulating community of people. Um, I mean, for for a data scientist having access to these important and interesting data sets and these challenging problems and having a chance to both work with and compete against the world's top data scientists, it's unbelievably exciting you know this is the this is this is absolutely fantastic more fun than doing a crossword (laughs) yeah the the, um but how it ties into our vision for kaggle is where where we're heading so we we've proven that we can like in just in every circumstance get better results than it's possible to get in any other way and so we want to turn this um we basically want to get to the point where data scientists are earning their full-time incomes on Kaggle and not just a, a good full-time income that you could um, earn working for a bank, uh, for instance, as a data scientist, but rather a, a full-time income that looks, well, if you're a star data scientist, that looks more like the full-time income that uh, Roger Federer might earn, for instance. Well, Roger Federer is a good example, right? Because, I mean, if you think about why Roger Federer is earning so much money, it's not necessarily because playing tennis is the world's most valuable activity, but it's one of the few activities where Roger Federer is being judged truly meritocratically. You know, he's better able to hit a tennis ball than anybody else, or at least a few years ago he was. Um, and as a result, he his uh, earnings are in line with his his empirically shown value as a tennis player. So when you turn another labor force, in this case, data science, which is a much, much more important area of endeavor than tennis, into a true meritocracy, our expectation is that we would expect to see the top players here, once being truly meritocratically judged, earning tens of millions of dollars a year. Because people now know this guy's the best, they, um, you know, the outcomes they produce are better than anybody else's. And we know that, for example, in our bank, our credit scoring system, if improved, would give us an extra $300 million a year. Will they earn money through Kaggle or will they earn money just through being recognised through Kaggle? So they'll earn money through Kaggle. Um, the idea is, so where we're going, and this is the, the big product that we've launched um, reasonably recently, uh, is is a private competition. So you're a bank and you have a data set that can't be put out to the world. Uh, and so what you do is you host what we call a private competition where we'll invite uh, 15 of our best uh, data scientists to your competition. Each of them sign an NDA, much like the, the type of NDA that Deloitte or Accenture would sign. Um, and then they sort of duke it out on your data set. And in order to attract... so. If you're, um, say you're, for instance, Bank of America and you're a, a Kaggle customer and you're using Kaggle to get better credit scoring models than you could otherwise um, build, well, what then happens is you've got Wells Fargo and Citi and um, Chase falling behind. And so consequently, in order to attract our best, sorry, they they fill, up, fill a pool to the platform in order to, to uh, attract our best data scientists. They sort of have to bid up prize money. Um, and so 
the competition for the best talent uh, ends up driving up prize money. Yeah, I mean, it's actually a fundamentally sound economic argument, um, um, which, which goes as follows. It's pretty straightforward. The Kaggle platform, it turns out, delivers faster, uh, better, uh, um, and potentially, certainly at the moment, cheaper outcomes to the most important data problems. We know it's better because we've empirically shown that it's beaten every benchmark that's ever been set in every competition that's ever been run on it. We also know theoretically why on the basis of the nature of the competitive instinct and the nature in general of crowdsourcing, bringing a wide variety of skills and approaches to a problem. Um, we know it's faster because we can see that, for example, when Allstate put up their, their fundamental strategic algorithm, their actuarial vehicle algorithm up on the site, their best algorithm was beaten within two days. And a similar <laughs> thing happened with NASA. Their wow. best astronomical signal processing algorithm was beaten within, was it one day? Uh, it was quick. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, almost embarrassing, isn't it? It's not at all embarrassing. I mean, these comp I know Allstate well. I used to run a startup that did uh, insurance analytics for 10 years, and I think they might be the premier actuarial team in the world. I mean, they are brilliant. And I certainly know that the um, NASA uh, and uh, that, that, that group of agencies, the, the people that were working on that problem wrote the books that I learned data science from, literally. Well, it sounds like there's all, your, your tagline can almost be something like, there's always someone smarter out there and they're probably on Kaggle. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and we get more out of them as well. I mean, as Anthony right. said, I used to compete on the site regularly. It's, it's horrendously addictive. And, you know, if anybody listening to this is thinking about competing on Kaggle, I would strongly recommend they don't because you're never, you're never going to like that. Uh, and furthermore, you end up, may end up working for the company, which is even worse. See, you're just doing reverse psychology on them. Now they're going to be like... Yeah, yeah, I better try this out and see how bad it really is. Yeah, yeah. Sucked in. <laughs> um, no, I mean, and, and what I found was that, that the sense of somebody being in front of you on the leaderboard... And you know that they've found something you haven't found. There's something there, even though you thought you'd already done your best. It, it, it pulls you in and makes you try again and again and again. Um, it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to improve. It's great just for kind of this, this, this feedback process. Is, it get, really gets the most out of you. So, so given that it's faster and better, the basic economic argument is, well, surely... Um, all um, you know, all, all problems that involve driving um, kind of value out of data should be going through this platform. And when you have a meritocratic marketplace, you would um, economically expect to see the the price of that labour effectively being driven up. So you know, for us, this is an exciting thing for data scientists because it should mean that for the first time their value is really getting understood and they're really getting rewarded for it. And it's exciting for the kind of the, the overall technology curve of artificial intelligence and machine learning because this feedback loop will cause it to drive up faster than ever before. I have a sort of a, a almost like a meta question about optimization here. So if you have a lot of your top data scientists um, on Kaggle, you, you, there's two behaviors that might be interesting to, to understand. It's like, if you're one of the top guys and you think there's another few people that you know are top, are you going to want to avoid them and go after easier pickings? So that, you know they're on competition A, so you're going to go on C or D because 
you'd rather spend your time on something and not have to compete against them directly? Or is it the opposite? They're like, well, I want to go compete against the best. The, all the best are on this competition. I want to prove my mettle and show that I am the best. So I'm going to go compete against them. So, Anthony, I reckon it's the latter, don't you? Certainly up until now. Um, some of the, when we've had, for instance, Netflix, Netflix prize winners in a competition, there's like that extra pull. I want to be the guy that beats the uh, Netflix prize winner. Yeah, I kind of actually, I, I think I saw that happen where you ran a competition to help feeder the International Chess Agency with their, um, their uh, chess rating system. And I remember, I think it was Yehuda Corrin, who's a, a, a genius data scientist and one of the Netflix prize winners. I think he joined. And within days, suddenly all the world's top data scientists had joined this competition. Um, and, you know, I can empathize with that. You know, part of why I joined these competitions was to test myself against the best in the world. Because um, if you get beaten by them, there's nothing, there's no better learning than saying, well, here's something I put my heart and soul into. I got beaten by this guy. And at the end of that process, they then post on our blog a description of what they did. And that's such a good learning experience. Better so, still is when you kick their ass and <laughs> post that thing on our blog and say, Haha, here's what I did. Well, that's, that's one of uh, uh, the favorite phrases of ours, which is that you may, it's not that you must win, but your best friend must also lose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But, you know, I think this might slightly change as it gets to the point where, you know, people are making their millions on Kaggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I reckon people will start to create their own meta algorithms that actually identify low-hanging fruit. You know, we're planning to run tens of thousands of competitions a year. Um, right. So if I was a, a competitor rather than our president, you know, I would be kind of having things that look for new competitions, look for places where my automated algorithms suggest that they may be, you know, fairly easy to model and people that weren't currently getting the most out of them. And, um, you know, it start to get quite quite meta since we're using that. Does the new efficiency that you bring to the market mean that teams like the Allstate Actuary team may end up going out of business? No. What ends up happening, so I don't know if you guys saw, there was a report put out by McKinsey. Um, McKinsey Global Institute, is that the one? Yeah, Hmm. talking about a real shortage of talent. Um, And so at least in the companies we're dealing with at the moment, um, first of all, there must be data scientists to do the, to understand the domain and communicate the domain uh, to competitors and on the other end to, uh, to action those algorithms in the business. Um, now, what it would allow for the company, what it does allow for the companies that we work with is it allows each analyst to become somewhat more leveraged. So one, one analyst can probably handle five competitions at any point in time um, and handle them sort of in a more efficient way. And so, so you might see that Kaggle actuarial team kind of, it, I certainly think it would change. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you would, you know, some of that team may leave to become full-time Kaggle participants and because they would be the people whose best skill and greatest interest is in actually building the predictive models. Some of the team might specialise more in kind of creating visualisations and building the information to then give to Kaggle competitors to get the most out of them. Uh, some might focus on algorithm implementation uh, and they might build deeper relationships, better, deeper relationships with the, for example, the Allstate IT team uh, to help them implement models that were more sophisticated than they might previously have been able to. So you, you could certainly imagine the structure of the, the industry changing. Yeah, I, I, 
I have a, a background in the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in the trading industry, and I noticed that some of the most valuable people were the ones that could cross over. They could talk to the traders. They were they th- could think like traders, but they also could speak the language of the quants and that of the software developers because you had these sort of three silos that didn't really speak the same language or think the same way. And either, there's no way that you could get a bunch of business people at Allstate to like you said, sort of set up a competition and, and, and transfer that domain knowledge and that data in some kind of way that's going to work in a competition. So it's like those people who can facilitate that, those competitions are really going to be valuable. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, I mean, and, and interestingly enough, like you mentioned, uh, Jason, uh, you mentioned um, the, the kind of the software side, the modeling side, that kind of pragmatic uh, understanding of the problem side. It, it, interestingly, um, I'm lucky enough to get to meet a lot of Kaggle competition winners. Um, and what I've discovered is is that within each of those winners is all of those things you just mentioned. They're really amazing kind of breed of people. They're incredibly open-minded and creative and tenacious and have brilliant software development skills and, and deep data science skills and are highly pragmatic um, so one of the interesting things about Kaggle competitions is that it's it's finding this breed of people that really can do everything, um, leveraging them to the highest possible amount, um, and then for people that maybe have more specific strengths, like maybe they they build really clear visualizations, or maybe they're very good at IT implementation, and so forth. It allows those people then to to focus on the parts of the value chain where they can be used most effectively. Right. Now, um, Justin, if you don't mind, I'd like to take this back and, 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 and get the story of how this whole thing came, ab- came about. Yeah, sure. Right, yeah, so, Anthony, I, from my understanding, is that you came up with the original concept early on? Yeah. If, if you could maybe t- take us back to where you were and what you were thinking about and sort of how you got started on it. Sure. So my background was in, well, it's a branch of statistics called econometrics. It's basically... Um, statistics applied to economic modeling and economic forecasting. Um, out of, I went to a school at the University of Melbourne. You can probably hear my accent. I'm Australian. Uh, <laughs> so my first job was at the Australian Treasury. And, um, yeah, so my job was to build um, macro econometric models that forecasted unemployment and inflation and GDP and all, all the sorts of things that economists care about. Um, so everybody at the Treasury used to read The Economist magazine and they have a little blurb at the, at the bottom of the magazine um, where they advertised a, a, an essay competition. And uh, if you win the essay competition, you win an internship at the magazine. And so um, this is a, a bit of an unfortunate aside, but I wrote, <laughs> wrote in 2007, late 2007, about how this thing called the uh, uptick in subprime mortgage defaults wasn't a problem and I don't know why anyone <laughs> was paying it any attention. <laughs> <laughs> So, so if that was a prize-winning essay, it must have been very, very well, well argued. argued yeah. <laughs> well, there's that joke about the two-handed economists. They can argue each. You just tell them which side to argue and they'll, <laughs> and they'll argue it effectively. Um, so I went over to The Economist for three months and um, I was asked, I can't remember if I was asked or if I pitched the story, but anyway, I started writing a, a piece. I was writing for the finance and economics section. started writing about um, big data uh, and, this, and the, the idea of... Uh, yeah, predictive algorithms being sort of used more um, ubiquitously in business. 
And my first reaction was to become totally obsessed. I thought this stuff is just awesome. It's all the stuff uh, that we do in econometric modeling, but to predict, for example, for Barack Obama's presidential campaign, who are the likely swing voters, or to predict for hurrahs, um, how much money somebody can lose. Are these people you actually talk to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I guess at The Economist, they probably take your calls, right? Yes. You, you, you uh, call up saying you're from The Economist and, um, and people, uh, people tend to take your calls, which is also really nice. Um, so as a, as a result of this, I had access to people who I wouldn't ordinarily have had access to. And um, it's kind of interesting in speaking to CIO level people, it was very clear that they were very like predictive modeling was sort of very high up on their list of things that they wanted to implement. Um, but the actual implementation of predictive modeling in most of these companies was nowhere near the zeal. It wasn't matched by their zeal to implement, if that makes sense. Um, or maybe matched by their ability to implement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing, because it's the thing I noticed like 15 years earlier, um, but failed to successfully do anything about. I, I, um, was uh, one of the guys that started um, a group, uh, the customer analytics group at a large international management consulting firm. And I interviewed, it's a bit like you, Anthony, I interviewed like all the top people all across the world um, at the top of, of government and, and industry bodies about how they were using data. And they all wanted to use it more effectively. They wanted to do modeling more effectively. And they all had this struggle, which was they didn't know how to go from their plans to their execution. They couldn't find the people that could actually do it for them. And, you know, unlike you, I didn't have any idea about the solution. Well, the, I mean, and here's the thing, right? So all these companies, um, it, the problem is that you're, as a product manager, it's a very difficult product to buy or as a CIO. Uh, somebody offers to sell you a support vector machine for $2 million or a neural network for $1 million. Which one do you choose? Which one's going to work better? It's impossible to know at the outset. Um, it's also very difficult, as the McKinsey Big Data study sort of suggested, it's also really um, difficult to find these people. On the flip side, I knew that as a data scientist myself or a statistician, I would, l would have loved to um, get my hands on these sort of real-world data sets. So there was kind of this market failure. You had companies with data um, that wanted access to talent and talent that would have been really happy to get it, particularly in research, happy to get hold of this data. And not just get hold of the data, but also have the ability to prove themselves. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants, you know, thinks that they've got the world's best data science algorithm. How do you, how do you show it? And, you know, doing it through like conference papers or journal papers, it's not easy because the way you're judged is by a human or by a peer review committee who look more at things like how is it laid out? You know, are your proofs... Um, thorough is it you know genuinely new research you know not about things that I think should matter like does this predict stuff better or not totally so this so the idea of competition sort of seemed to solve a whole lot of problems all at once um, and anyway I left so I was at The Economist for three months and um, was kind of had my head sort of like I couldn't get my head off this idea but didn't really have the courage to step out of my very cushy job. Um, and I, I was really restless and ended up leaving the Treasury and I thought I'll try something else. I'll go to the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is our equivalent of the Federal Reserve. And I lasted there five months. I just couldn't couldn't shake this idea. I actually started um, coding up Kaggle in the, in the evenings while I was at the RBA. Um, 
And you make that sound so straightforward as somebody who's yeah. not actually a programmer. So what he actually means is he taught himself to program <laughs> and then started coding. Yeah, this is where we like to dig into the details. So, okay, <laughs> you know, you, what were you programming it in and what part of it did you build and how'd you learn how to do it? Um, so I used to read Slashdot and I noticed that Joomla came up all the time on Slashdot and I thought, all right, um, uh, I don't know. I'd like to start off with some code that I can look at. I'm going to start off with this thing called Joomla, which and I didn't really understand what Joomla was. Um, and so I bought a book on Joomla and learn all about, I don't know if this is too much detail, um, but I learned about MVC patterns and um, PHP and um, just like all the basic stuff to get sort of a very simple Joomla site up and running. Um, and I think I started by taking, if I'm not mistaken, I started by taking an existing Joomla component. It might have been the Weblinks component um, and sort of modifying that to do something a, a bit interesting. Um, and I can't remember what that interesting thing was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't terribly interesting. I just thought it was interesting. Um, and so this was kind of to learn to code and to learn how Joomla worked and it all. Yeah. yeah. But I was always... Um, I know that I'm one of those who can't just go away and be curious. I always have to be building something. So it was always um, with Kaggle in mind um, that I was sort of like hacking away. So I was, you know, when I was modifying the Weblinks component, I was trying to build something um, that would be a step on the way to building Kaggle, um, which probably think given hindsight I think um, it would have been better if I'd stopped uh, you know surveyed the the area of um, you know frameworks a little bit more uh, diligently and um, perhaps pick something that was a little bit more appropriate but um, I had my own psychology uh, to contend with and I know that I always need to be building something um, but it's nice to get something done I mean I feel the same way like like it's nice to have something out that you can say, I've, I've made this and it works. And To be honest, I think you did the right thing because it, it, Joomla gives you a lot out of the box. You know, all the user registration, the whole framework of the website. If you'd have, if you'd have moved over to just a basic framework, you would have had to be thinking about an awful lot more stuff at that stage. So you actually got this out much faster because of your decision. Yeah, and the other thing was there were a lot of components. So I knew I wanted a social network. Well, I thought I wanted a social network as part of Kaggle. So there was a component called John Social. Uh, so I could just plug that in. Um, the idea, which I think seems perhaps, well, it was probably good for the prototyping phase of Kaggle. Um, I, th I was working under the assumption that it would be easier to take something that was more feature-rich than what I needed and pair it back. Um, and also get to look at code as well. I paired it back uh, and to sort of learn at the same time. Um, and so that was very effective in getting up a, a sort of hacky prototype. Um, but I think the second Jeremy took a look at the code, so Jeremy's got a bit of a background, quite a strong background in, um, in coding. And then we brought on our uh, chief technology officer, Jeff Moser. They took one look at the code <laughs> and... I just said, no, I am not touching this. <laughs> well, we kind of had a strong sense of that already because Kaggle was um, not very big um, at the point when I got involved. Um, you know, there was, it's not the kind of site that even each, each user has to be on it all the time. It's not like an email system or a social network or something. Um, 
and already at that time it was slowing down. Um, so it was pretty clear there were there were issues. So when I started to look into how the database had been set up and actually how the code was running, you know, it became quite clear that um, you know Anthony had done an amazing job of kind of duct taping together something that worked um, and did the job. But it, you know, as soon as we realised that it wasn't going to scale, um, we stopped. I mean, we didn't stop the site, but Jeff and I went away and, and rewrote it from scratch in a more um, performant, you know, um, uh, infrastructure and in a way that was kind of built to scale and built to be maintained in the long term. Uh, and that was, you know, right. I'm very glad we, we did that. Right. So you were building this on your own using Joomla, then how did it progress out of that? Yeah, so it's a, uh, and when I started learning to code, I kind of thought, okay, the idea is so good and so obvious that all I have to do is get this thing up and running and it will be a runaway success. Um, right. One of the problems was I was coding out of my um, bedroom in Bondi in Sydney and I didn't really have much exposure to the startup world to, um, I wasn't reading Hacker News, I wasn't involved in any startup incubator. Like I was literally just like heads down in code trying to build this thing as quickly as possible. And I sort of like was really naive about what came next. So I was totally convinced um, and probably it was good that I was because if I knew how things, how hard things would be after that, I probably would have given up. I think that's true for all <laughs> entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, good to it's be a, a very, very common story. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was getting to like the last few weeks of like finishing the code and polishing the stuff. And I thought, well, hang on a second. What happens now? Um, that's when I had like, I felt like, yeah, I felt like I'd just fallen off a cliff. It was like, all right, I'd just been running like crazy, trying to code. I'd, I'd accomplished this big thing. It's like, oh boy, what happens now? Um, well, first, before, before you go to the next, I just want to say, no, this thing that you built, I mean, it, it was sort of the kernel of what Kaggle is now. I mean, you could create a competition, host it, and people could compete and upload data, or was it something different? Yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly it. I mean, it was... Um, it didn't look that different. No. I mean, functionality-wise. Yeah. Okay. So you did actually, you were actually able to build a functioning web app that yeah. worked. And okay, it, well, that's impressive right no, there. No, it really yeah. worked. I mean, and frankly, when I, when I met Anthony... You know, I've done I've done some startups myself before, and um, when I met Anthony, I was blown away by you know because like my background, I had some background in coding, I had some background in in consulting, you know, and like you know to meet Anthony and discover this guy who had who had done so much with with creativity and grit and determination, you know, I, I was absolutely fantastic. I think um, uh, success. Anthony, you were just saying how you felt like you had, had run off a cliff. Where, where are you now? Well, okay. Um, so then I thought, well, how on earth am I going to get users? And so the first thing I, I um, did was I um, wrote to all the competition organizers, like the um, organizers of the KDD Cup, for instance. So there are some academic data mining conferences that um, have been running for some time now. So the KDD Cup is the oldest one. Yeah, that started in 1997. And these are, just to explain what these are, these are basically, these are basically um, competitions that 
uh, run in conjunction with a conference. And if you win that competition, the conference puts aside a slot for you at the conference where you present your methodology. Um, you know, mechanistically, they're like the Netflix Prize or a Kaggle competition. You know, and in fact, nowadays Kaggle runs probably most of the conference competitions. Certainly, a big chunk of them. <laughs> then there isn't necessarily any prize money, but you might get a free. Um, entry to the conference and, and you paid. yeah and you'll get like a poster session you might get to present your work so it's, it's yeah it's you know the kind of the academic kudos so did you get any f- users with that route well so i i um um basically had almost that uh unanimous response which was well are you out of your mind what who are you uh you're not part of our community um, <laughs> <laughs> i've never heard of you before uh, how on earth would you know how to run a data mining competition? I, I should, um, I should, uh, there should, there's one person who um, actually um, uh, sort of backed me in my bid to try and host the KDD Cup, so I should give some credit there. Um, um, who was that? Isabel Guyon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I didn't get very far. Um, so I thought, all right. And, and I should also say that in the meantime, I met, um, when I was at the Treasury, I worked, um, I was fortunate enough to do a bit of work for one of the deputy secretaries. Uh, I wrote a speech for him and did some other modeling work for him. Um, so this is one of the sort of people who was second in charge. And this was really lucky um, for a whole lot of reasons. But he introduced me to his brother who had just chaired the Australian government's Government 2.0 task force. And his brother had become, through the Government 2.0 stuff, really interested in tech and startups. Um, his name's Nicholas Gruen and um, Nick agreed to, he kind of was pretty taken by the idea and said, oh, you know, I'll invest uh, a small amount of money. Um, and so I had a... I mean, that's quite a big deal because, you know, Nick Gruen is a big deal in Australia. This is somebody who writes in the top business paper. He's, you know, regularly on very popular radio shows. I mean, he's and chaired, you know, this very important government panel. So it's not like this is Nobody. That's a pretty no. big deal. Yeah, he was a, he's quite a high-profile Australian. So that was a, a real coup. So not only did I have some money, I had the, the cachet of having Nicholas Gruen as a... He was our first chairman. Um, and so that was really helpful. And so what that enabled me to do was to create my own little competition and put up some prize money for it. Now, my wife is totally obsessed with... Uh, Justin, I noticed you have an English accent, so you may be familiar with this. Uh, the Eurovision Song Contest. Have either <laughs> of you come across it before? Right, I definitely have, yes. Yes. Um, kind of American Idol, but European-wide. And Where ABBA, ca- ABBA came from. Yes, that's right. ABBA and uh, Riverdance. I don't know if Americans have come across Michael Oh, they, they definitely know River, Riverdance and ABBA, and, yes. <laughs> and I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I have a feeling Celine Dion. No, that can't be right. There was someone else. <laughs> anyway. But it's basically crazy performances. And the, but the interesting thing about it is that um, the voting for the Eurovision Song Contest is, like, is much less about the quality of a performance and far more about, um, well, political block voting. So to give you an example, Ireland always votes for England. England always votes for Ireland. Um, and the reason is because, I mean, some people generously argue that, you know, England, England and Ireland have sort of similar music tastes therefore they're more better disposed <laughs> to each other's music i think it's i i, I think it's just um it's just uh it's it's more about sort of political voting so probably a lot of brits in ireland a lot of irish in britain um and they therefore uh, you can't vote for your own country but you can vote for your own country if you now live in ireland for instance <laughs> right. um, 
I know one of the one of the really interesting patterns was um, it was bizarre to me when I saw the data. Israel tends to allocate a lot of votes to Belarus, which seems bizarre. But if you look into the history, um, Israel took in, I think, something like uh, 1.5 million ex-Soviet citizens in the early 90s. So there are probably a lot of Belarusians in Israel. So, so it was your wife's passion for the Eurovision contentists that made you think maybe we can run a competition around all these weird voting patterns? Yeah, so it was kind of a, a quirky little competition to predict the voting matrix, who would vote for who, um, which was kind of partly geared to be a bit of a publicity stunt. Um, and also just a bit something a bit quirky and a bit different. And I think I remember it did get publicity, didn't it? Yeah, it was picked up by Slashdot and um, also the BBC statistics show, more or less. Um, and really interestingly, again, I remember the morning that it was picked up on Slashdot. I actually, I sh- shouldn't admit this, but I put the post there myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how, yeah, so would you first decide to do a competition? I mean, how do you promote it? I mean, just because you create a competition doesn't mean anyone's going to participate in it? That's a really good question. So um, I posted to a lot of statistics mailing lists. Um, okay. I posted to, I think, KD, I wrote to the, the, the editor of KD Nuggets, which is a big data mining newsletter. I wrote to um, anywhere that would allow me to post stuff um, where there wasn't a human being blocking me from posting stuff. That was always advantageous, I found. Um, um, Slashdot was because, as I said, I read Slashdot. So for me, the holy grail was to uh, to appear in Slashdot. And I remember, um, I remember seeing that the site was picked up on Slashdot. I think the the day I posted it, I was checking every two hours, and it was still pending. Pending. <laughs> sorry, two hours. That's generous. Twenty minutes. Pending. Pending. <laughs> pending. Then the night came, and I wasn't sleeping. I was sort of waking up every hour, and I could still see pending, pending, pending. Um, and I think I woke up at five a.m. and I saw that it had been posted um or it had been put up and i woke up my my wife immediately and i said we've made it it's done <laughs> Taggles a success Taggles a success um again, i remember something similar with my first startup it, it, it went onto a very popular forum and like within minutes i had like 20 users and it's like yeah man i'm rich <laughs> exactly um um, and, and I should say, actually, even before that, um, I think I had some st- logging, some software that logged the number of users I had. I can't remember, I think it was AWStats or something like that. And um, I remember calling up or speaking to a friend on the phone and bragging that I'd had 400 visitors. Most of them were bots. I, I sort of <laughs> worked out later. Um, but these are the sorts of um, celebrations that seem totally ridiculous now. Uh, but, uh, but I think you have to appreciate every one of these steps, you know, because, you know, you can't kind of hold your celebrations until the day you do the billion dollar IPO. I mean, every step counts and you have to enjoy it and and look back and say, you know, I've achieved something today. Well, I'll I'll go a stage further than that. It would actually be boring to do a billion dollar IPO to just get it right straight out of the box. What's actually much more interesting is the, the, the hard travel and learning the lessons and the knocks. Well, that's my opinion anyway. Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, um, I've never gone straight to win a $1 billion IPO. <laughs> <laughs> We're all talking out of ignorance here, I guess. <laughs> well, we often say, well, Jason teases me because he says, I talk billions, but I earn thousands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, when you, when you, once you got slash dotted, how many people actually signed up for your competition? Well, I was over the moon. I ended up having 20 teams enter the Eurovision Song Contest competition. Wow. And, and um, I, I couldn't have been happier. 
Um, I remember. But I mean, the results of that were still very successful, right? Yeah, it's it's actually true. So the modeling um, was it kind of interesting, though, because it's about beating the markets. If you can beat the markets, then you've mm. kicked ass. So the what I did was I took an average. I actually think I posted it before Eurovision as well so that I had proof uh, that this was actually an average. Basically took the 20 teams that entered um, and averaged their, the aggregate number of votes and sort of came up with a top 10 list of um, teams or the, the predicted top 10 um, based on the modelling um, for the Eurovision Song Contest. And I, from memory, uh, the competition, aver- the average entries um, picked seven out of the top 10 compared with five of the top ten for the betting market. So it did beat the market. I, I wouldn't say that it was a, a conclusive win, but it was certainly nice that it came right. out. Did, did, this, did software work okay? I mean, were there any problems that broke down or have any, like, you know, you have any fires you had to put out the, the first couple of days? Um, no. One thing I did with the money that had been invested into Kaggle, and again, this seems a bit silly now, but I, um, for whatever reason, was totally paranoid about... Um, bugs and I think one thing I've also learned is to become less and less of a perfectionist. I think Jeremy and I are now at the, the point where 80% is probably... Oh, we don't give a shit about anything anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 80% is good enough, but I was really anal uh, to begin with. So firstly it took longer to code the site than it m- might have because I just wanted to get every bug I could possibly find um, off the site. And I actually hired some testers, I can't remember from where, um, I think I got them off Odesk from memory or rent a coder uh, and I paid them quite a bit and they spent quite a long time sort of hammering away at the site. So the site was actually pretty robust. Um, the code was, when um, Jeremy talks about the code being awful, uh, it was awful in that it was very difficult. It was like spaghetti. It was if everything worked, but it was very difficult to add new features. Exactly. That's why I kind of said it was like it was duct taped together. I mean, it, it was... I think it's genius to be able to achieve something that worked so reliably and successfully, you know, with, with code that was kind of like stream of consciousness code is the way I describe it. Okay. I need, I think we need to back up on on, on one thing here. So, well, first of all, I want to ask what, what, um, where, where was this in in time? What month or yeah. What month and it was a sin exactly. So the Eurovision song contest, if I'm not mistaken, it's in early May. Uh, so this is early May 2000. This is May 2010. Okay. And you said that you had money invested in it. So you were working on it in your bedroom in the evenings while you were still working oh, at no, no, the no. bank. Sorry, I left the bank in August of, or maybe it was 2009. September of 2009 and spent okay. quite a lot of time coding it up. I launched that first competition Again, this is from memory. I think I released a demo site, so demo.kaggle.com in early January and okay. um, uh, just with some Australian rules football data and got seven entries to that competition. Um, then probably got to the point, then had, all, had yeah, probably got the point where I was comfortable releasing a proper site um, in maybe April of 2010 and then that Eurovision competition probably ran for about five weeks. Okay. So um, you, you left your job. Did you have any funding or was that just living off savings while you were coding it up? Yeah, so I was living off savings. Um, and to be fair, my um, then fiance. Okay, what, right. So she was your investor? Uh, I guess you could say <laughs> yes. that, yeah. Did, no, did, in the relationship. <laughs> right, right. So 
okay, so you're living off savings, you're coding on your own. I mean, at what point did you did you uh, get investment? I mean, it sounds like you got some before you launched in, in yeah. the Euro. Uh, yeah. I was actually um, the week before my wedding. So I got married in February of 2010. And the week before I had this meeting with um, Nicholas Gruen and Nicholas pretty much on the spot said, I will help you regardless because I think this is great. But if you let me invest, I'll help you more. Uh, now, who was that who invested? Uh, that was Nicholas Gruen, uh, the Australian Gov2O guy. Okay. Okay. So he, no, he was, was he like a personal friend or was somebody you were introduced to? Or how did, how did that whole thing come about? No, because so he, one thing we like to do is dig up to the miracle function because someone says, oh, and then I got investment. Like, like that's easy to do. So right? this was I mean, the guy that well, Anthony just, talked about before who, who he had been working with and writing some speeches for. Okay. This is the brother of the guy I've been working for at the Australian Treasury. So this okay. is the guy who headed the Australian Government Gov 2.0 task force. Okay. Okay. And so he uh, he met with you and just you pitched him and he said, "Cool, I'll I'll invest." And how did that go about? I mean, did 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 he do a round or did he just was he your only investor? How did that go? I didn't know what a round was. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I was I was sort of not savvy enough, but I was worldly enough only just to know about Y Combinator and Techstars, and I think we decided on a um, evaluation slash investment amount that sort of was the average of every startup incubator I could find. And so it was, it was Nick's idea, the whole you know I'll invest thing, mm. um, and then it was a case of coming up with okay how much money for how much. One one question is is in that relationship was it just. You said, hey, I've got this great idea. And he was like, okay, I'm going to invest. Or was it something that went over a few meetings that t- it took some time to convince? He told me he would invest at the first meeting. And I think I was a bit focused on my wedding, which was next the week after. Um, and from memory, so from memory, we had lunch. It was like a four-hour lunch um, that was meant to be one hour. Um, <laughs> Uh, then I got married, went on my honeymoon and came back and I think we met again and I said, yeah, let's do it. Something about these long lunches. Yes. It was our $11 million round came from a lunch that went on too long as yes. well. <laughs> wow. So how, how much did you raise uh, in your first round? Or can you, are you able yeah, to discuss I think, that? I, th- I think that's probably uncontroversial. It was, I'll say br- broad figures so as not to, um, um, not to betray a confidence that I, that um, I haven't necessarily had permission to, to well, I, I won't, I'll say it was in the um, ten to $30,000 range. That's oh, broad okay. enough. That's, uh, I guess, narrow enough to be useful, hopefully. Okay, sure. Okay, so so that's just real, that's like, that's not even angel round, that's like friends and family round. Yeah. That's like your uncle writes you a check for 25 grand. Or, or fools, as, fools and family, as it's known in the trade. Sure, yes. okay. <laughs> You um you need to know that I couldn't believe at the time that somebody was willing to to invest twenty thousand dollars in this. I thought it was unbelievable. So yeah, right. Okay, so that so th- so then you had enough to to sort of work on it at least without freaking out, thinking you're going to have to get a job in a few months. And is that what allowed you to keep working on it till till you had the official launch in was it May? Um yeah, in April. That and my wife's okay. time income. Okay, right, right, and. Okay, and so you, you were going along with this, and how did it progress after that first competition? Because it, Jeremy came on board at some point, so why don't you take us through yeah. you know, that progression? So there was, before Jeremy came on board, I think there was maybe one or, one or two major milestones. Um, so towards the end of the Eurovision competition, um, I a little bit had the same sensation I had 
when I finished building the site, it was like, okay, this competition's ending soon. We can't have nothing on the site. I've got a handful of users. What happens now? And so um, I didn't want to put together another competition. Um, so I thought it was a good investment to instead, actually it was Nicholas's idea, to put out a spotter's fee. So um, I think we offered something between an iPod and an iPad, depending on how strong the lead was, for anybody who brought a competition along and some prize money. So this is, you know, somebody in the somebody um, somebody on the user base who worked for a company that might sponsor a competition. Um, if you were somebody to bring along that competition, then uh, you, you might win as much as an iPad. Um, and that got us a phenomenal data set. It was basically a set of genetic markers um, and it was basically data on H. It was an HIV research problem. Um, and the best way to explain this is to say that, okay, in HIV research, there was this issue. You could basically predict, the, the, there was an open question about predicting the progression of HIV. So the idea is that you can live a long, healthy life or a long life with HIV or you can deteriorate quickly. And this is partially governed by genetic markers. And what this research question was about was about using these genetic markers to predict whether somebody would live a long, healthy life or whether they would deteriorate quickly. So that must have been tackled for some time already, right? It's not like that's a new problem. Yeah, so that had been tackled for quite, I think it was about four years before, prior. Um, and it was a really great data set. Put it up, it got I pinged all the same mailing lists. And um, this one really captured mine share. I think it got 107 entries in total, 117s rather, entered in total. Um, but the most interesting thing was that in a week and a half, the best of four years worth of academic research was matched um, and by the end of the three-month competition, the state of the art was beaten by... I think the error rate was like halved, wasn't it, or a yeah, third less? It was quite... A big. third less, yeah. exactly. Um, so it was pretty dramatic. Like this little um, company that was operating out of um, my bedroom had been able to make a major breakthrough in HIV research. Um, the next milestone, which I won't go through in perhaps such laborious detail, was um, a time series forecasting competition. And this is a major milestone... Uh, for another reason, but it was a competition to basically take 20, uh, 2,000 um, departures and arrivals from 2,000 cities around the world and predict... The uh, next two years. The next, yeah, the next, next one period of time. And it was also a really good data set, and this time we were sort of benchmarking against basically 40 years of time series research. So this was a competition by the International Journal of Forecasting, and they applied before the competition all the main time series algorithms from academia and from industry. Yeah, so this was the first competition that I entered. And that was one of the things that, oh, okay. <laughs> this is one of the things that struck me about it was how fascinating it was to actually see, you know, that, that International Journal of Forecasting study was thorough and well done. It included commercial or industrial software, included a wide range of academic algorithms, and this meta-analysis had challenged them all against each other to find the best of the best in predicting thousands of time series across many periods. And so the idea that they had come to your company, Anthony, to say, is there actually any way of doing it better than this and moving outside of the time series community, I found fascinating challenge and what they did which was kind of un well it was extremely unusual um was they said to anybody who can beat the best of their models 
you can publish without peer review in the International Journal of Forecasting. Now, a lot yeah. of the people on the, the user base at that time might have had 2,000, uh, might have had 2,000 or so on the user base, maybe not that many. I, I can't really remember, to be honest, but a lot of them were academics. And so the idea of getting a publication in the International Journal of Forecasting uh, is quite a big draw. There's no way I would have ever had a paper published because I was nobody in the community. Yeah. So I thought that'd be kind of, that was another reason I got interested. I thought that would be kind of cool. Mm. Right. Um, Although, frankly, I was actually mainly interested in not coming last, you know, because <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, this yeah. is pretty amazing. You know, the people, the people at this stage on the user base were like people from MIT and the Thomas J. Watson Research Centre yeah. at IBM and top people from Google, API, and, like, it was a pretty awesome bunch of people that had already found your site, Anthony. It was, a, yeah, it was a pretty strong user base. Um, and, yeah, interestingly enough, and Jeremy can go through this in more detail, but the guy who ended up winning this competition was a guy from my local R users group. Uh, and it's, as you probably guessed, Jeremy Howard. So he made wow. the first breakthrough on the competition. Somebody got ahead of him and he ended up coming back and, and winning the competition. Probably just total stubbornness at refusing to lose. <laughs> um, but, I mean, my approach there was to say, well, you know, the, the editor of the International Journal of Forecasting knows time series algorithms and the state of the art of them, so I won't even bother using any of that. Not that I know anything about time series forecasting. So I'll try and come up with something new um, and... You know, I've been working in my own startups for the last previous 10 years and um, we'd come up with lots of interesting ideas and kind of general machine learning techniques and so I tried applying some new approaches um, and turned out they worked really well. What were, the, what were your new approaches? Um, essentially, it was a, a... I think one of the key things I did was I used a um, approach called um, optimization. Um, which is, I know you guys mentioned it already, it's a mathematical technique which is related to but separate from um, predictive modelling. Um, optimization is all about, rather than, um, it's all about finding the kind of tuning the parameters of something to make something as high or as low as possible. So one of my previous startups um, applied this optimization technology to insurance pricing. It was all about finding the insurance price which for each customer would optimise, maximise their predicted um, net present value, basically. So what I did in this competition was I used optimization approaches to actually find um, the best strategy on each individual time series for coming up with the next two years of predictions. So uh, was this like a genetic algorithm or simulated annealing or what was the specific optimization technique? Um, it was actually a pretty simple hill climbing um, technique. Uh, okay. So one of the things that, it's interesting you mentioned that because actually um, at at my, this previous startup I mentioned, Optimal Decisions it was called, um, or still is called, um, I actually started that out of an interest in genetic algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, and genetic algorithms are massively flexible, extremely powerful, but extremely slow um, approach to um, optimization. And one of the things I'd learned in the previous 10 years is that um, the much more kind of old-fashioned, simple hill climbing type approaches, if you know a few simple kind of heuristics, um, can actually work 
much better, as in much faster and um, uh, than something like a genetic algorithm or simulated annealing. So it was kind of some of those rules of thumb and that kind of magism that I think helped me with that first competition. Right. Okay. Cool. And so you ended up winning. This was... When was this in the life? This was during the summer? So I guess this was like September, Anthony, of 2000. And that sounds about right. Yeah. We were in Australia, so that's winter. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I had actually come across it because I had sold my most recent startup about 12 months earlier. Um, and I kind of thought of myself as somewhat retired, as in I couldn't imagine myself going back into a commercial environment because it was, it's, you know, pretty, pretty hard work um, doing, doing startups. Uh, but I was certainly looking for an intellectual challenge. I was a bit bored, frankly. And uh, a couple of people suggested to me, you know, they said, well, there's this thing called Kaggle where you definitely won't be bored <laughs> and you will definitely be challenged. Um, and, you know, I had been hiring a lot of people, you know, mainly PhDs from Harvard and MIT at my previous startup um, and kind of, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to actually challenge myself against those kinds of people to see if I had anything to offer uh, to see how dated my skills had become. Um, and so I was quite surprised and pleased to discover that my kind of slightly hacky but pragmatic and tenacious and creative approach to data science actually was more effective than maybe some more formal um, algorithms that were used by some of the other competitors. Which has actually been a consistent finding, as we kind of Yeah, right. I mean, physicists and electrical engineers generally do the best on our competitions because, you know, these are people who know how to hack together a solution by hook or by crook. And use common sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to what? As opposed to who, who would you think would win? Uh, computer like scientists and statisticians. So the the tendency right. AI researchers, machine learning researchers, right. st statisticians. But it turns out that they they have some tool that they've worked with for twenty years, and they just apply it. It's like they've got one hammer, and they whack everything with that one hammer. Or focus a lot. Yeah. So um, focus a lot on the algorithm as opposed to the common yeah, sense. Yeah. Right. Or you know they'll kind of prove theoretically what algorithm should work the best, mm -hmm. and spend three months doing that, and then not have any time to actually try eight different algorithms and see what works in real life. Right. Okay. <laughs> so in a sense, um, Jeremy, your approach was like that of doing a startup, which is just get something out there and just iterate and iterate and iterate. Oh, yes. Break. That is so perfectly described. I mean, and this is what I tell um, new competitors now or people that want to improve. I tell them, get something up on the site every single day. Put half an hour of your time into this every single day. Um, and try and get a better answer tomorrow than the one you get today because Kaggle gives you feedback on every solution that you put in. Um, yeah. If if all of if everyone's working on historical data sets, don't the algorithms suffer suffer from curve fitting for yeah, future that, prediction? Yeah, that that's the kind of thing you have to be careful about. So so overfitting is the um, issue that you're talking about, um, and overfitting occurs when you put in so many solutions that um, eventually you kind of A-B test your way to the correct answer. Um, so the way Kaggle is designed is very smart. Um, at the very end of the competition, the data set that you were getting all that feedback on the leaderboard from is actually thrown away and your model is tested on a whole new data set um, after the competition's finished. 
And it's that whole new data set, which is called the private leaderboard, is the one that's actually used to assign prizes. So the leaderboard that we described earlier and the leapfrogging we described earlier is only indicative. Um, and so there are circumstances, they turned out to be rarer than you would think, where somebody wins on the public leaderboard, but they've overfitted to that portion of the data set um, and therefore don't end up winning overall. Uh, the reason it's... Yeah, because if you withhold your your sort of because um, you have what your training set, your your yep. test set, training and then set, your validation set. data and and private data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and if but if you if you if you test too much on your test set, that essentially almost becomes sort of like a semi training set. Yeah, right? yeah, effectively, and so you've got to be real careful about overfitting. And you know, this actually it actually turns out. Not surprisingly, that Kaggle is a brilliant teaching tool for people learning the, the practice and the craft of data science because by entering actual competitions, you get feedback that you just don't get feedback in an academic or an industrial setting. So, for example, there's actually a thing called Kaggle in class, which is where um, universities like Stanford, for instance, use this. They actually um, run competitions, Kaggle competitions for their students. And based on their performance of the students, they then can actually get 100% on an exam and actually skip the exam by winning um, these Kaggle in class competitions. The, uh, the Stanford example is cute. Um, the guys who won ended up spending 100 hours on their uh, competition right. entry. And what? these guys, apparently, according to the professor, were not people who were particularly diligent in this area or particularly interested in, yeah. in their statistics course beforehand. And now, actually, one of them we see it um, very often at the Bay Area R users group. So he's developed a real, you know, through the Kaggle in class. And he's won another competition in, um, in, yes. a, in a broader setting since. Yeah. So he's, he's, this is a guy who's got addicted to data science through Kaggle in class he's competitions. Developed a lifelong interest. There's also a fellow from, we did a Kaggle in class competition for the, for the University College London. Uh, and the guy who finished fifth in the NASA Mapping Dark Matter competition um, first discovered Kaggle through his in-class competition, which I think is kind of cool. Who was that? That's Marius Kovzarenko. Oh, okay. So, how, no, okay, so um, Jeremy, after you, you participated in this one competition, but how long into, uh, or, or further along, was it before you jumped on and became part of Kaggle itself? Well, <laughs> I, I um, after this, I think it's while this, yeah, I think it was just after this competition finished, I um, I got quite interested in um, learning more about data science and the Melbourne data science scene. So I went along to the next R meetup. So R is the um, statistical programming language that is most popular on Kaggle. Um, and uh, met some people there and they're asking me like, uh, you know, um, what have you been doing and how do you use R and you know, and I kind of said, well, I've been um, entering these things called Kaggle competitions or the, this particular Kaggle competition. Um, you ever heard of it? And uh, one of them said, well, not only have I heard of it, but the guy that um, runs Kaggle is standing over there. And I had no idea that Kaggle was even an Australian company. Um, huh. So I was like, are you serious? So I wandered over. And I just kind of knocked this, knocked this guy on the shoulder and I said, oh, hello, I, I hear you're involved with Kaggle. And he turned around and he says, yes, I am. Why are you, are you interested in it? And I said, oh, I just competed in one of your competitions. It was this uh, time series forecasting competition. Actually, I, I came first. 
and he was like, oh my God, are you Jeremy Howard? <laughs> so Jeremy used an avatar for his uh, cartoon um, image of himself as his avatar. So I didn't, uh, otherwise I would have recognized him. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we got talking um, and, and I started learning about this story about how Anthony was this guy who just had this passion for this, taught himself to code, um, tenaciously just made this thing work all on his own. Um, and I was just so impressed by him. Um, and I, I just wanted to help him any way I could. I mean, having done a couple of startups myself, I knew what he was going through. I could just empathize. I knew how difficult it was to work with, you know, code and running things on servers. I actually ran quite a large email um, system for a while. So I knew all about kind of trying to keep things up and running. So I said, look, just please let me know if I can help you in any way because I want you to succeed. So what um what started happening is Jeremy would help out on more and more stuff. Um, and I remember... So this was just informal. There was no payment or no agreement. It was just, uh, you know, wanting to help a fellow Melbourne entrepreneur do well. Um, and we started, I think we started spending more time together, particularly after we both went to a conference together in Sydney right. and we got... International Conference on Machine Learning. Yeah, and um, we spent quite a lot of time together there. Um, I mean, one of the things I found was Anthony was introducing me to interesting things. So I didn't know about this conference, and Anthony mentioned it was on and invited me to go with him. And so, you know, I started kind of by hanging out with Anthony, I started discovering things I didn't know about before. And I think the definitive moment was some point where Jeremy said, I think it was one of the, I think the leaderboards were loading a little slowly. A little slowly. It was glacial. <laughs> and Jeremy said to me, um, I and, and as a competitor, I was, had to reload the leaderboard every five minutes to see if anybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so Jeremy said to me, I think we could do with some indexes on the leaderboard. Do you mind if I jump into the database and add them? And I said, you realize the minute I give you access to the database, that's it. You're no longer a Kaggle competitor because I store the answers in the database. And he said, all right. That um, wasn't the only thing he said. I remember the skepticism. First thing he said was, no, Jeremy, I think the indexes on the database are just fine, but you're welcome to check anyway. But by the way, if you do, you won't be able to access anti-Kaggle competitions anymore because you can cheat. And so Jeremy said, all right. Um, give me a couple of days. Um, he went away, put in his last entry to a competition by the University of Melbourne, which was to predict the outcome of research grant applications. Um, so this was just for, for interest's sake. Um, this was to take, you know, the, the um, investigators um, who are involved and the title of the grant and blah, 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 and predict whether or not that research grant would be successful or not. And um, Jeremy went away, put through, put together his last entry and at the ended up winning the competition just as a bit of a, an aside. And, um, wow. and then um, that was it. I gave, him, I gave him the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, so I said, okay, that's it. I can't win any more money, so give me the, give me the username and password. Logged in, added the indexes. Proved myself right, the leaderboard loaded in a <laughs> which made me very happy. So now I could access it every five minutes uh, <laughs> and get it quickly. And um, and that was that was kind of it. Um, Jeremy came with me to Silicon Valley for the right the Strata, Strata conference. conference. Um, we so that's a data science conference. It was actually the first one run by O'Reilly, yeah. and it was awesome because like it was the first time it had happened. 
while I was um, while Jeremy and I were sort of starting to work together, um, something else very interesting was in trying. Uh, I had heard, I think I got a Google alert, and I got the shock of my life that some medical practice in the south south of Los Angeles was planning to run a data mining competition worth three million dollars. Wow. I thought, well, hang on a second. This is a data mining competition that's worth more than the Netflix prize. and More than the Nobel Prize. More than a Nobel Prize for medicine. And there is no other data mining competition platform out there. Uh, what on earth is happening here? Who's running this? How are they doing it? Um, so I had started agitating. Um, I just started trying to get in contact with anybody I could at this company. Um, and I spent probably about two weeks like just absolutely driving them nuts and Anthony doesn't take no for an answer. <laughs> well, that's a that's a good uh, characteristic for a uh, absolutely absolutely necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And um, eventually, like I couldn't believe it. I woke up to an email saying uh, I'd like to talk. And one of um, well, it was probably something like, "If I agree to talk, will you stop bothering me?" <laughs> well, actually, no. I think I spoke to them a bit about the issue that I think Justin raised earlier about, or maybe it was Jason about curb fitting. I, I don't, in one of the oh, emails, overfitting, yeah, yeah, um, I wrote to them about all these reasons why they couldn't do this themselves. Themselves, and one of them was I wrote to them all about curb fitting or overfitting, and um, you know, how on earth are they planning to? deal with this issue and I, I think it was that email in particular that resonated because um, he, he said oh you know I've just heard you've mentioned this curve fitting thing I've not or this overfitting thing I've not heard of it before um, can you explain it to me and so I explained it to the fellow and he suddenly got kind of a bit um, I don't know a little bit agitated and I could imagine it be like I'm about to run a three million dollar <laughs> prize and if this guy from Australia hadn't have taught me this I would have screwed it up what else am I missing that's yeah process and then um, we rushed to put together a proposal which um, which Jeremy uh, um, contributed to um, that was probably our second sent Anthony off to LA yes I went off to LA well actually no fortunately um, the contract was signed before I went yes. to LA but it was a condition of signing the contract that we would meet face to face yes I weren't that happy with the fact that we were an Australian company um, so I arrived over there and the um, fellow from this company looked at me and he said, oh boy, I've just fired, I'm not going to name the other company, and I've hired a kid. Uh, <laughs> um, we have a fabulous relationship with them now. And, the and furthermore, it's not just a kid, but it's like, and how big are you guys? There's two of us. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I revealed that at the time. <laughs> Very sensible. Um, yeah, and so that was... That was. Um, I mean, people have consistently assumed that we are orders of magnitude bigger than we are. Yes. I mean, there were only two of us, or and then Jeff came along, three of us, until a, you know a few months ago. Mm. So the um, the other thing that was sort of happening at the same time, this was kind of a pretty exciting time in the company, which is why I was hoping we could go just a little bit long, because it would be a shame not to keep this in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could tell there was some stuff we needed to. Yeah. Cover. Yeah. Um. The other thing that was happening at the time was I'd asked this um, programmer um, who had I was interested in implementing a rating system that rated the the players on our website, you know, like golf rankings, but for the data scientists on our site. And um, I asked this guy who had written a big blog post on it called Jeff Moser from um, Indianapolis if he could code it up for me in PHP. And he said, oh, well, I don't really know PHP, but Facebook uses it and I'm kind of interested in trying it out. Um, I've written it in C Sharp. I'm going to port it across to PHP and write a blog post on it. And um, 
the code came back and it had all this stuff in it that I'd never seen before, like namespaces and just, I thought I, I couldn't, I was a bit annoyed that this guy who'd never written PHP before was using stuff that I had never seen. Um, <laughs> um, and so I started speaking to Jeremy about it and Jeremy had actually, interestingly enough, used the same piece of code, or, well, sorry, his the C-sharp, C-sharp version, version of mm. his code in the chess rating competition. Yeah, I come across him quite independently. It's actually thanks to Jeff that I came second in the in one of these uh, chess rating competitions for FIDA. Right. And, you know, I was just so impressed by this guy because not only was he the first person ever outside of Microsoft research to successfully implement this very, very difficult algorithm. What was the algorithm? Re- yeah, it was called TrueSkill. It's It's used to rate Xbox players. Yeah, when they do okay. like in Halo, for instance. Um, and, uh, you know, he'd written this incredibly clear blog post about it. And he'd also written this code that was very, very elegant. I mean, it was, it was so thoughtfully constructed that even though I'd never met the guy, I felt like I knew him because I'd kind of lived with his beautifully constructed code every day for two months. <laughs> so when Anthony asked me if you heard of Jeff Moser, I was like, yeah, this, I, have, I, have I heard of him? I you know, feel like I know the guy. So we, um, we approached him and said, oh, you know, how would you like to work for Kaggle? And- yeah, this Melbourne startup with two people. <laughs> okay, well, now at this point, I mean, you, you, had, you had received $25,000 in funding the previous February or something. Oh, yeah, right? I and- to mention, that's right. And the other thing that happened was, you know, I, when I offered um, Anthony my help, I also offered him my money. So I invested another 100 grand at that point. Oh, okay, nice. So you came with more than just skills. <laughs> you came with cash. So that, yeah. that helps things along, yeah. Nicholas invested 100 grand, and I, I borrowed from uh, family to chip in a bit more as well. So we actually had a bit of cash. Uh, and we really had no expenses to speak of. You know, we were running on AWS that was, you know, pretty cheap. Um, we weren't paying ourselves any salary. Um, so really, yeah, cash was definitely not a problem. And Jeremy, you had come across, come into this money from what previous startups? Is that how you were able to? Right. So I had, I had spent kind of about 10 years in management consulting at McKinsey and Company and AT Kearney. So I had some cash from that, which I had used to create two startups 10 years earlier. And I had pretty big um, exits on both of those. So, okay. so Jeremy founded um, Optimal Decision Group, which is an insurance pricing company that he sold to ChoicePoint uh, that was then swallowed by LexisNexis. So it's now called the LexisNexis Decision Group. And the other one's a company that um, you or a lot of your listeners may have heard of called Fastmail, which was yeah. kind of the Gmail before Gmail, I guess, or the Hotmail before Hotmail. It was the Gmail before Gmail, yeah. So after Yahoo and Hotmail were around, you know, there just wasn't any good power user email system. So in 1999, early 2000s, it was kind of the standard power user email system. One thing, you those other two startups that you that you started seem like obvious, um, let's say, obvious exits, obvious money makers. This one doesn't seem like that so much. So what what you know, how, what was your thinking about that? You know, um, obviously, as particularly with my consulting background, I spent really nearly 10 years in business strategy. So I spend a lot of time thinking about that kind of question. Um, and I talked to Anthony a lot about it. And we realized that there's a business here that should be able to capture a revenue of um, <clears throat> well over a billion dollars a year. In fact, quite a few billions of dollars a year. And furthermore, should be able to achieve margins of 70 to 80%. Um, this is a 
industry that's worth you know over a hundred billion dollars a year right now. It's highly acquisitive. There are tens of billions of dollars of acquisitions in this area each year. Uh, and we have a method of doing this which is faster and better than anything else which is out there. And furthermore, as a highly liquid marketplace with a high level of lock-in, the network effects are huge. Um, so we would expect to achieve quite a high percentage of deal flow as our, as our um, taking from this. So it was clear that the business model here is superb. Um, and whether or not that that leads to an exit it's like, well, who cares? I mean, if we have a right. $5 billion a year business and we achieve a um, 10 times revenue IPO, uh, then we'll be very happy. You know, we're, we're not here to sell it to Google. We are here to turn this into a company that moves the entire technology curve around artificial intelligence, um, that changes the nature of the job of a data scientist to be one of, you know, in which they are the most, maybe the most valuable um, people in the world. Um, and have a lot of fun doing it. That's that's what we're doing this Yeah, for. that is really cool. So l- let me ask you one, one last question, and then uh, we'll continue with the story. But so when you st- started helping, uh, Jeremy, when you first started helping Anthony, this was after exit. So you're sort of independently wealthy post-startup. So you kind of have time on your hands that you can help someone out and compete yeah. in these competitions. Is that why this all kind of came together for you? It's so easy yeah, for you to sort exactly. of help them out with no strings attached? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, um, as I said, I was not planning to go back into the commercial mm-hmm. area. I, I had enough money to do whatever, whatever I wanted to do. Um, uh, what I wanted was an intellectual challenge. Um, mm. Anthony kind of suckered me into this piece by piece very slowly. <laughs> so right. I was happy to give him my money. I fully expected to get it back and then some. Um, I was happy to give him advice. Um, but then he dragged me to Silicon Valley to this conference called Strata Conference, which was the first time ever that all the world's top data scientists came together in one place. This was that must have been conference. really fun, huh? Yeah. yeah and like, so I slept on the couch. I don't know why I got the couch and Anthony <laughs> got the comfy bed and Jeff got the other <laughs> bed. Well, 100000 wasn't enough of investment. Oh, apparently not. <laughs> we couldn't afford a third bed. Yeah. So uh, we all went off to Strata Conference and kind of every day Anthony and I would just come back like, I would ring my wife and be like, okay, you know how yesterday I said it was like the most exciting day of my life? The day was even better. So here's what happened. Uh, and I just kind of thought, Jesus, you know, I, what have I been doing with my life? I've, I, want, I want more of this. Um, and that just totally swept me into it. I was going to um, build up to Strata because um, something pretty important happened between uh, uh, Jeremy coming on and Strata. Um, so we had this guy, Jeff Moser, who I was talking about a bit earlier. Right. Now, Jeff, so we went to Jeff and I said, your PHP code has stuff I've never seen in it. Jeremy thinks you're great. Come on, come on board. Um, no. <laughs> well, basically it was, you know, I've had offers from LinkedIn. I've had Facebook, offers from Facebook, Amazon, Amazon Microsoft, and I'm going to work for this little Australian company that, um, that with a name called Kaggle. I mean, you've got to be kidding. Um, and Jeremy gave him the whole what do you want out of life speech. And then on the same trip when I went to see the uh, the Heritage Provider Network people about the $3 million competition, um, I flew over to Indianapolis. And I said to Anthony, okay, it may be, how, how warm was it or cold was it in Indianapolis? So it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Australia or maybe even more. It was really hot, the height of summer. 
And in Indianapolis, I don't know what it was in terms of uh, Fahrenheit, but it was something like negative 10 degrees centigrade. It was unusually cold for Indianapolis and Indianapolis. So I said, to, I said to Anthony, go and sleep. It's your turn. Go and sleep on his couch. And don't come home until he says yes. Um, and Jeff and I spent the day together. We basically sprinted between coffee shop and lunch place, um, from lunch place to lunch place, um, just because I couldn't be outside for very long because I wasn't, I just wasn't. When you, when you pack from a warm climate, you don't pack, no matter how cold you expect it to be, you don't pack enough warm clothes. And I was free. Right. Yeah. Um, but we had, we just had a wonderful day together and it was really exciting discussion and, um, and um, that was enough. So that was enough, I think, for Jeff to come on board. Mm. And uh, I think he describes it as the one crazy thing he's done in his life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so it's worked out pretty well so far. <laughs> yeah. and so so he, actually, was was Jeff Ace? Had, had he done startups before? Or is he just had worked for companies? Was this like a first sort of startup yeah, experience he would have? <laughs> He'd worked for Raytheon and then Interactive <laughs> Intelligence. Yeah, not really startups. Um, so no, this was this was a little bit different. But he was certainly well versed in. He's a you know big hacker news reader, well versed in sort of startup culture, um, and also the other thing about Jeff is he's a um, his blog. So he's a really well known blogger, and so I guess that's his own little. That's something he's built himself. I think he has a huge audience. His blog's mojaware dot um, yep. So I mean, he so, sort of was. He kind of had a, an understanding of the startup scene, but had not built a startup himself. Right. Okay. So he. So he, after that day, did he just agree to 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 jump on with you? Is that how how it played out? Yeah. Um. My memory is a little bit hazy. It was either he agreed um, to get involved, or he agreed to a two week trial or something, um, where he would you know work weekends or extra time. But I don't think it took very long to go from trial to actual. Um, I remember part of the discussion board. was he said to me, so Jeremy, are we going to be using Anthony's code? <laughs> and I said, no, you will never have to look at Anthony's code again. And he said, I am so pleased to hear that. <laughs> he definitely had no interest in, I was trying to convince him that he should take my code and just build on top of it. And he had no interest in that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So now at this point you had, what a couple hundred thousand dollars investment were you and you were going to hire him and was he concerned at all about your finances that you would be able to pay him or he would ha he would have an income for any get for no we, near we also uh, we also signed up i mean the, we um signed quite a good contract in the heritage health prize contract right the three million dollar prize thing gave us enough money to to cover jeff well and truly yeah so it wasn't okay. really um wasn't such an issue I mean, well, how, how do those key. contracts? How, how how would a contract like that work? I mean, it, uh, yeah, I mean, that, I guess that gets into the business model of Kaggle. Yeah, I mean, so basically, we get paid to host competitions based on the amount of prize money and also based on how long it's running for, and finally also on how complex it is for us to to set it up and at the end to implement it. So you know, there's a few levers involved in the pricing. Um, Furthermore, for kind of public good competitions like the Mapping Dark Matter one, we generally do it for free. Um, but overall, you know, for um, commercial organisations like the Heritage Provider Network, um, you know, we get we get a, a good fee out of them. Okay. Okay, so good. So that so that makes sense. So then, you know, you're able to bring him on. He came on as what the CTO? Is that was uh, was his yeah. role? That's okay. his role. 
And and then you're at the strata. So what happens after uh, strata? I mean, I guess that was a big turning point for you, Jeremy, at least in that terms of saying you figure out this is what you want to do. What happened? That, that was business? one thing. And the second thing was I volunteered to work full time with Jeff on on architecting and implementing the recoded version of the site. Um, mm -hmm. So we stripped it down, started again in C Sharp, um, put it on Azure rather than AWS, um, used uh, ASP.NET MVC instead of Joomla. Um, and so Jeff and I crunched and our, we had a definite due date, which yeah. was the l actual launch of HPN was April the 4th. So the issue here was that um, I hadn't, I'd read a little bit on web security, but it wasn't clear. In fact, it was clear that the site wasn't secure enough to host a $3 million. Well, scalable enough to host a number of people. Yeah. yeah. So it really had to be rewritten and rewritten very quickly. Yeah. So I absolutely crunched and so did Jeff and we got it up in time. Yeah. Um, we had absolutely no problems at all. It, it, it was from the very get-go, it was fast, it was stable, it was secure. Um, but, you know, Jeff and I have written lots of stuff, so that wasn't a huge surprise. We did a lot of testing of it. Um, that got us a whole bunch of press. It got us in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Forbes. There was a lot of press around the launch of the Heritage Health Prize. And, you know, kind of then suddenly, like, CEOs of health companies were ringing us up and saying, we want what they've got. <laughs> um, the, the press made a huge difference. Totally, yeah. Uh, so we had just been to Stratoconf. Um, okay. We had um, we had hired um, Jeff by hook or by crook. We had uh, coded uh, the site in uh, C Sharp um, and had it up and running. And uh, so we're now in a position where we have lots of uh, press, a bunch of press, and a bunch of interest. And uh, um, Kaggle's looking like it's um, you know potentially going to be a big success. Yeah, so you know, I was actually going to ask you. I had written a note down to ask you about. The press, because it seemed like you must have a great PR person to be in The Economist and Fast Company and Science and Wire and everything else. But I guess that sort of worked out for you because you got to coattail on on the, uh, what was it, the health network? We had, we had no PR person. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It, if, but by, by working with this, you know, big client, you, you got their sort of fall off press, I guess. So I mean, we had a couple of things going for us. One is that, um, you know, Anthony is just very good at building personal relationships at telling the story at getting people interested um, and he's also very tenacious at, at organizing these kind of meetings so he had done a good job particularly in the early days of of getting getting to know people and getting you know getting them to cover us um, right. also I had done a lot of press in Australia I was quite involved in a couple of um, breakfast TV shows over there and um, so forth. So, you know, I had some sense of what to say and who to say it to. So, you know, between the two of us, I think we did a pretty good job. Um, but, um, you know, there did come a point a few months ago where we decided to bring on a PR firm to help us and um, particularly around when we got our big Series A round. So we did use a PR firm eventually. Okay, a lot of um, a lot of the press is built on momentum. So, um, you, yeah, somebody writes about you, and others discover you, and uh, you get known as an you become known as an interesting story in an interesting space. And um, I mean, I noticed that like always. It would be like I I remember once I was on like a 
lunchtime news thing um, and like as soon as the news had finished somebody from another channel rang me up and invited me onto the evening news to yeah. talk about the same thing nobody wants to miss out on a story um, and like the more press you get the more media is yeah it's like the old saying nothing nothing succeeds like success <laughs> yeah and you know the other thing most importantly is is just Kaggle competition outcomes are really interesting. Yeah. You know, the success of the dark matter search was fascinating. The human stories in that are interesting. Well, the one the I like technical is, side is huge. The one I like is recently we did a competition for a, uh, to predict which cars would be lemons in a used car in a used car auction. This is for a big com- a company, a dealership that buys a lot of used cars, and uh, it turns out that um, if you buy a an orange car at a used car auction, it's less likely to be a lemon mm, because right. it's a more unique color, therefore. More of an enthusiast's car, something yeah, exactly. that they've loved. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there's always interesting anecdotes and stories and scientific breakthroughs um, and also just the fact that Kaggle itself is a story. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a good news story. It's a story that is, that is utilising people's talents. You know, everybody likes a true meritocracy, um, well, except for the people that fake it. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's a very media-friendly story as well, which helps. The um, so, one thing that the... Sorry, go on. No, you go on, go on. One thing that the media led to, which um, wasn't at on, on our radar at all, was... We started getting inbounds, I think particularly the story in the Wall Street Journal, which was really well placed. Um, we started getting inbounds from VCs, and this wasn't something we took very seriously uh, initially. No, which was partly my fault, I think, because I my, both my startups had been self-funded. So I had been kind of advising Anthony, you know, if you've got a self-funded startup, it can set you up financially for life without having to be a VC level, you know, um, goal, right? Because they, they're going to want you to exit at these huge multiples, and if you get Correct. to the stage where you're successful and you could be financially living very well, but you're you have to force yourself to excel to something at yeah. level that they're happy, you could kind of mess things yeah. up for. It. For a first startup, there's a lot of good reasons to be bootstrapped and self-funded, um, and and yeah, that's definitely the number one is that you can exit at a level where you never have to work again, but your the partners in your VC firms won't have enough uh, money to f- fill up their private jet for the next uh, for the next jet about yeah right right the um, so um, yeah you were, you were going to say something Anthony so what um, the more time spent in the valley the more it became clear that the valley had a bit of a formula and so and I should point out that we were still living in Australia um, Jeremy was actually spending a bit of time in China we were not um, living in Silicon Valley at the time um, but the, I particularly came over pretty often um, for conferences and, and um, trying to sort of replicate the Strata experience. Um, and the more time spent in the Valley, the more it became clear that the Valley had a formula for building companies and really big, successful companies. And we still had a big vision for Kaggle. Um, and that vision was part of our whole VC thing, you know, as, as, the, as we realised the vision was not just create something that's moderately good and you know, financially kind of, you know, gives us a reasonable return. It was we actually genuinely want to change the world. We actually want to shift the technology curve in a key key area of artificial intelligence. And, you know, so we had big plans, didn't we? Mm, absolutely. Right. Um, and so, you know, there was the inbound from VCs, which uh, and on, I took a couple of meetings and um, 
it sort of became clear that this was a something we could probably do without turning ourselves absolutely inside out and it was probably the thing we ought to do in order to achieve this Anthony was the first person to realize this. And so when I was in Beijing, we spoke every day and pretty much every day he would tell me about some other VC who had reached out to him or he'd met at a conference or whatever. And I very clearly remember the point at which I agreed to come over to San Francisco and do a funding round with him. And it was when he said, Jeremy, trust me, we've totally got this sorted. It'll be two weeks. Um, We'll make a million bucks. Um, and it won't distract us at all. Just come over. I'll set up the meetings two weeks, and if it doesn't work out, you know, we haven't lost anything. So you said like, we'll make a million bucks? No, we'll raise, raise. Yeah. Raise a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll come. I wanted to come to San Francisco anyway, and I was planning a trip anyway, but I was like, all right, you organize the meetings and um, – I did. I turned up in San Francisco and Anthony had done as he had promised. He had somehow organized back-to-back meetings for two weeks with all of the top-tier VC companies, uh, VCs in Silicon Valley. It was it was absolutely, I was totally blown away. Wow. Um, you know, that was... Yeah, that is impressive. Out. So then... Um, but it wasn't two weeks. <laughs> no, we ended up, um, it's, we ended up going a bit longer Um there was quite a bit of interest in the round and it was clear that we could raise um, quite a bit more and not have to worry about. Basically, it ca- we, discover- we kind of realised that we could raise a much larger sum and then just take the resourcing issue off the table. So we could raise an amount that would let us do whatever we wanted to do and not have to worry about like not have money be a constraint in making this a huge business. Mm. And it's more than just a resourcing issue because also we realised that the more we raised, the more we could do. The more we could do to accelerate and ensure the success of this business in a shorter period of time. And our number one concern was and still is that somebody else will come along and do this faster. And since this is a natural monopoly, it would be hard for us to get back in the game. So by raising a larger amount, um, it allowed us to avoid that by accelerating our growth. Right, you build a moat. Mm, absolutely. Um, right. And so, I mean, the, the you know, so it was a pretty whirlwind, probably took, maybe it took a month. Uh, well, actually, gee, I don't know how your memories are thinking of that. It was actually five months from me arriving to us, finally, finalizing, closing and announcing the round. Oh, right. It uh, was kind of a month of, you know, so the first couple of weeks got us to the point where we knew that people were interested. It was another couple of weeks to kind of find people that we really liked and kind of optimise our um, term sheet. And it was probably six weeks before we actually had a final term sheet nailed down. Six weeks from the beginning. Yeah, and then another six weeks probably to kind of close you know, get the, or no, actually more than that, maybe two and a half months to get the paperwork finalised. Yeah. I mean, it, it all ended up being much more, again, it's one of these things that if we'd known it was going to be that long, we wouldn't have done it. Um, but, gee, we learned a lot. We had a great time. We came away with lots of great stories and, and um, an investment from some really visionary and exciting people. So I noticed you that Max Levchin, Levchin, is that how I pronounce his name correctly? Yep. 
is the who's the who was a co-founder of PayPal. Yeah. Is that yeah. Right. One and he, three. yeah, one of the three, and he is on. He's a chairman of chairman. Kaggle. Is that right? Yeah. So, so he, he must have been part of the investment round. I, I would imagine. Yeah. So how it worked was um, we were actually pretty close to um, finishing the round. And then we just, um, we had a coffee on a random Sunday morning with uh, a guy called Neil Reimer of Index Ventures. And I was kind of a bit unenthusiastic about keeping this arrangement because we were basically done with the fundraising and to do another pitch was just going to be exhausting. And Neil, and Neil wasn't that interested. He really wanted to see his nephew mm. that day or something. So we, we all turned up to this breakfast kind of a slightly enthusiastic. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and uh, three and a half hours later, um, everybody was really leaning in. It was um, Neil. Neil was particularly interesting. and He's got a... He's got a Deep, deep insight into marketplaces. Yeah, you know, he's 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 absolutely visionary in this area, and he was the first guy we'd spoken to who was teaching us stuff. You know, he was telling us stuff we didn't know. And so he, um, so Neil had done Betfair, and he's in Stack Exchange, and a lot of businesses that gave him the tools to understand our business. Um, he then, and how it worked was, he then introduced us to um, Coastal Ventures and Vinod Coastal. Who um, and he he was he kind of was had a sense that this would be something of real interest to them, uh, and it turned out to be of real interest to them, and so they. I mean, Vinod was maybe the next guy who was like Neil. He like within seconds had totally picked up exactly what we were about, asked the most insightful questions, and immediately came up with three or four ideas for next steps that we had never thought of before. So it was kind of like. It's like, oh my God, we found the A team here, <laughs> you know. So between right. Vinod and Neil and their teams, it was obvious that they were going to be able to support us with a lot more than just cash. And the uh, and the Coastler crew had invested in Max's uh, second startup, yeah, Slide, which Slide, hmm. and uh, which he sold to Google for a very big exit. Hmm. Yeah. So they introduced us to Max. We had a coffee with him. And then uh, it was more than a coffee. I remember with Max, like Max, you know, you you might think that a guy like that is he's obviously a brilliant businessman, um, but you might think he might, you know, maybe somebody like that would have slightly lost touch with code and math and the tangible side of things. But we had this entire discussion. We were talking about cryptography techniques and data mining algorithms, and it was like talking to a kindred spirit. You know, it was like talking to a to an old and slightly nerdy friend. Um, it was it was so nice to meet somebody that we felt so comfortable with. Right. Did um, so. You now was he part of the investment round himself? Is that how he yeah. became chairman? Uh, yes, exactly. Well, we would gladly have had him as chairman anyway. Um, but yes, he was uh, involved in the investment round now, as well. You said you had kind of had your round, your round sort of finalized. So then you had, did you have to redo the round, or did you just add them in, or how did that? Work? We didn't. Um, we didn't. Have we didn't have a signed term a sheet. A signed term sheet. No, we, we were, were close. okay. We were pretty close to signing a term sheet, and um, yeah, we were pretty yeah we were pretty close to signing a term sheet, and so we weren't kind of that interested in starting the whole negotiation thing again. And you know, frankly, we also had some kind of basic ethical standards that we were determined to stick to. So once we had a term sheet, we 
were determined that we wouldn't shop it around. In other words, that we right. wouldn't say to other people, here's our term sheet, here's how much it's worth. If you can do better, we'll ditch them or whatever. So when we spoke to Index and Coastler, you know, we were pretty upfront um, about, you know, obviously you have to tell them you have another term sheet and that you're pretty close to signing it. Um, but that's all we told them. Um, okay. So, you know, we certainly felt like strategically they were our best partners and we hoped to hell that financially they would be the best offer as well. And it turned out that they were. So luckily we didn't have too confusing a uh, decision right. to make there. And how much did you end up raising in that round? Uh, 11.25 million. Wow. So you went straight from sort of friends and family almost. Yeah. Cause it, cause it was sort of sub angel. Angel round you think is like half, well, I guess quarter million dollars. I guess that was sort of an angel round when you came in. Right. Kind of, but it, it, but it all was friends and family in some ways. I mean, so, right. you know. It wasn't and, an official, you know, we got a, a band of angels together who threw in yeah, half a million dollars. It, it was, it was it, all done kind of scrappily one at a time and um, without much process. Right, and, and 11.9 is kind of like a B round. You kind of almost skipped your A round. Yeah, I mean, so the plan would be not to have a B round perhaps, uh, depending right. on depending on what else happens, but, uh, you know, we, we could well um, reach escape velocity and would expect to reach escape velocity without additional funding. If we take additional funding, it would be for strategic reasons, not for, uh, not because we desperately needed it. Right, that's that's right. very appropriate for, for, for a natural monopoly marketplace like this one. Um, it doesn't make sense to grow slowly. Um, you've got to do it fast. Yeah, you know, I, uh, a, a, a company that I've been doing consulting work for, Uber, um, I remember they raised like $11 million or something similar to that. And then it was like six months later, and I would say they, they raised $30 million. <laughs> like, yeah. You guys are already profitable. Why are you doing, why, you know, why bother raising all this money when you're profitable on your own? And like, well, the same, the same uh, tactic or I guess strategy that you guys are applying, which is that we want to build such an advantage that there's, that there's no competition. Yeah. I mean, Uber has some slight yeah. differences. I mean, like with Uber, they've got, it's got a huge um, issue with scaling internationally around kind of re- regulatory environment and stuff like that, um, which we don't quite have. Um, so we've each got our own challenges. Uh, right. Right. But yeah, I mean, I could see, I could see, I could see easily see what they would do with all that money. Yeah. Yeah. Just move bigger and faster and more cities around the world. And then, you know, it's kind of game over, <laughs> at least for this stage. So, um, but back to you guys. So, I'm trying to think. The have any more questions? Because I know we've we've gone a while here, and I don't want to, you know, sort of keep you longer than uh, than you can. But um, let's see. So, let me see if I have something here that I that I didn't forget that I forgot to ask. Um, yeah, the. Um, there's a two, two, two or three questions I, I guess I'd like to cover real quick. One is, so really early on, um, Anthony, when you started this competition, I'd imagine you had to have some legal work done, you know, in terms of like, I don't know, NDAs or IP and, or things like that. I mean, how, how was that all sorted out early in the, in the first wife, stage? My wife's a lawyer. <laughs> oh, so you got free le- legal labor. Nice. Okay, because that's always a question. Because between Anthony Wife and me, he actually did quite well for legal stuff. Because I did all the contracting, a lot of the contracting at my startups, and uh, oh, right, you know, and I was pretty familiar with privacy and data law and stuff. And uh, obviously, his wife helped a lot as well. So, uh, 
That was good. And then when it came to the investment round, we got introduced to um, one of the best uh, legal teams in Silicon Valley. So we've been yeah, because that because that's the okay, legal the legal cost can be pretty excessive, you know, early on, and especially for something like Kaggle, which you know it's not just like a privacy policy in terms of service. I mean, you kind of have to, you know, it's not cookie cutter. So that I would, you know that could be more expensive than yeah that could eaten up. Twenty-five, thirty thousand, right there, and it sounds like you're able to cobble that together for almost nothing. So that's really convenient. Yeah. The other question I had was, um, so you, you know, the one where you the, well, there, there's always this sort of conventional wisdom. I've been hearing this conventional wisdom for the last three or four years, which is don't start a marketplace. They're too hard because you have it's twice as hard now because now you have to get your buyers and your sellers. You know, instead of like for a lot of web applications or websites, it's like just get one group of people because if you don't have your buyers your sellers aren't coming if you don't have your sellers your buyers aren't going to come but it looks like you know you were able to get like one competition and then you were able to find sort of your you know i guess your competitors by in various mailing lists and stuff like that you could kind of target them and find them but after that i mean what's the strategy how do you go about finding um, companies to host on your site is it purely just word of mouth uh, because of all the PR that you're getting from the bigger competitions, or do you have like a sales team that goes out and and, and contacts potential uh, sponsors, uh, competition sponsors? The conventional wisdom um, the, for those who go past the first step of conventional wisdom and still go ahead and build marketplaces, the the second level of a layer of conventional wisdom is that if you um, if you are building a marketplace, go after the easy part first. And for the us, for us, so as in there's two halves, so go after the mm. easy half. Yeah. And for, yeah. so for us, the easier half was the data scientist half. And so we, because data scientists are desperate to find interesting data and interesting problems. Mm. So we started by building the, um, by just being one half of the market and putting up the first competition or providing incentives for others to put up competitions. Our, our thinking here was heavily influenced by a guy called Thomas Eisenman, who's um, at um, Harvard University. Uh, he uh, has a very interesting paper called, uh, called Platform Mediated Networks, and in fact he's written a lot of academic articles in this area. And so he was kind of, you know, Anthony had this natural intuition to go in this direction, but it was when we started studying um, Eisenman's work that we realized it really crystallized our thinking around this idea of focusing on the data science half and then providing, you know, a valuable pool of thousands of the world's top data scientists that would then draw the the competition hosts mm. in. The other, um, the thing, one caveat on this is that life's a little bit easier for us because um, if at any point in time we're undersupplied with competition, what changes is the number of entrants per competition. Uh, but you still, you can still keep people busy. Whereas in a right. in a one to one market where you know there's one buyer, one seller, if you have a mismatch, then one side of the market is always dissatisfied. So you have to spend more time maintaining that balance, um, and we don't have to worry too much about that balance. But you know, I mean. I think one of the things that Eisenman points out in, in his kind of seminal article is that I'm trying to remember the statistics. It's something like 70% of the world's 100 most profitable companies make most of their money from platform mediated networks. What, uh, what percentage is that? I, I, it's, it's like over half of the world's, well over half of the world's top 100 most profitable companies make the majority of their money. 
um, from these networks. Um, so right. maybe they're difficult, um, but they are money-making machines. You know, they are. Yeah, they are I, I remember. Um, yeah, I remember an article I read this was years ago talking about how all the other big companies were had eBay envy because yeah. of the model was so profitable and so sort of self-sustaining and, and it was a natural monopoly, as you, as you mentioned. As is PayPal, and it's very nice that our chairman is one of the um, <laughs> founders of PayPal. And, 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 you know, with Max on board, it's like, it's, like having a fort- it's like having some kind of magic fortune cookie. He can tell us exactly what's going to happen next because he's done it all before. Right. Is, is there any, I mean, I, I imagine that some of these strategic and some of the strategic advice you're given by um, these investors is stuff that you're going to be rolling out in the future and you can't talk about. But are there any things that you've already started rolling out that you can talk about, things that you hadn't thought about that were really new to you and really good ideas? I don't think um, it's so much that there are particular new areas of product which our advisors introduced that you can see publicly being rolled out. It was more mm-hmm. a case of focus and strategy and process and and implementation details it's actually all the important stuff you know the by far the biggest insight that we had um was that private competitions would be our most important strategic approach this idea that um most data for most modeling problems actually can't be released on the internet and so we we now have these things called private competitions where we invite our top participants to compete against each other um, just between a few of them uh, and uh-huh. kind of sign non-disclosure agreements and so forth. That's been right. by far the biggest. Uh, that, that was released a few months ago, and that's been our most important strategic product release. So to do competitors understand that if they do one of the public competitions, they may get invitations to these private competitions that could be – oh, excuse me one second. They could be substantially more – I'm sorry, let me, I'm going to rephrase that so I don't get rid of the phone call. Um, do the competitors understand that um, if they do well in the public competitions, that there's a chance that they'll be invited to the private competitions, which could be, I guess, more financially rewarding for them? Yeah, it's early days with private competitions. And so um, they're certainly aware that we've launched this product. And those who are getting invited to the private competitions are definitely aware that they're a bit more lucrative. And I've certainly heard quite a few of the top competitors say that they're looking forward to the day that their full-time income will be through tackle yeah. competitions and that they see private competitions as being how that will happen. Right, right. Um, and an- another question that I wanted to ask you about was that, you know, you, you, you hear of the, um, I guess, the lean startup idea, which is that, you know, you, know, you create this minimum viable product, you get it out there and you iterate, and then you, um, I mean, do you, how do you feel about how, Kaggle has evolved in relation to that model? Because it sounds to me that it was very much an MVP and very much an iterative approach, that you didn't put a whole lot of time and money. You built the simplest thing that you really could that could solve this problem. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think um, it was only at the point where we had uh, a decent amount of traction to suggest that there was genuine interest in this on both the number of players side and Know, landing this $3 million competition that we really invested in building a robust um, platform. I think, yeah, well, I mean, we kept going with the duct tape PHP solution for quite a long time. Yeah. 
as long um, as it until worked. we could mm. until we until we couldn't anymore mm. um, and it was at the point where we really had to build something better that we built something better um, and like in general like particularly around technology we we keep it simple we don't we don't build stuff which just seems like a cool engineering challenge uh, yeah. we build stuff that we actually need to 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 solve real people's real problems, which they'll pay money for um, reasonably soon. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the, only, the only thing you didn't do that was sort of the lean startup is, you know, that sometimes they'll suggest, like, just put out, like, some kind of landing page where you describe the problem. But I get, I get the feeling that that really doesn't work if you're building something that's truly innovative. I mean, if you're building something that's just a small twist on an idea, you might be able to get that. But I sometimes feel that, like, if you just described this and you didn't have people, and there was no way for people to actually use it, and it would be a hard time. You would have a hard time getting people to really be interested and understand what you were trying to do. Now, I don't see the point of that myself because what is it? How is that going to influence what you do? Um, like, if nobody signs up, well, maybe it's because they didn't, you know, really understand their need because the product doesn't exist yet and can't be demonstrated right. to them. If lots of people do say, I'm interested. Like, it's so common to hear people say, oh, everybody said that they'd buy it, but when I actually offered it to them, nobody did. Um, yeah, yeah. At some point, I think you actually have to know the true value of your product. Um, you actually have to know how many people have that product need. Um, you actually have to know whether the features that you offer are, are, are better than the next best guy or your distribution is better than the next best guy or if your price is cheaper that the elasticity will actually lead to a higher volume. I mean, at some point, you've got to make a call, I think. Yeah, yeah, because I, 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 I feel that way too. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like it, for most of these startups, you kind of have this sense. I mean, there's sort of this instinct. I mean, you've talked, you, you definitely talk to people and you do some research, but in the end, you, you have this belief in this concept and then you just have to build something basic to even and, test it out. Yeah, and building that basic thing nowadays does not take much. I mean, right. the, these kind of landing pages, they can be a bit of an excuse for a non-technical founder to kind of create something that, you know, they feel that they can manage. Uh, right. But if, you, you know, if you've, got some basic web development skills. There are so many APIs and services and so forth around nowadays. You can slap them together uh, to create, you know, most minimum viable products within, you know, within a few days. Um, so I, I don't understand the purpose of uh, not, not going down that route. Right, right. Well, I think we should probably leave it there. I mean, this has been a really interesting interview, but we've gone long, so I probably should let you guys get back to building uh, Kaggle and uh, and uh, you know but we, I really appreciate you guys taking all the time that you did to tell us your story and, and all your insights into uh, building your company thanks, thanks Jason, Jason. alright that's a wrap we're out we're out